Okay, team, so a new episode of Common Sense Podcast is live. I should start by apologizing about our filming and recording schedule. I was sick. I'm still a bit sick, but I'm kind of coming off the end of that now. But anyways, today you're in for a treat. I'm sure you've been reading the news and seeing one story after the other detailing politicians and their corruption. So that's the topic of today's episode. And we are joined by a special guest, Lord Michael Hastings, CBE. He is the president of Zane, vice president of UNICEF, and also a member of the House of Lords. So who better to speak to about this topic than him? Um, and, and we talk about two other big things. We talk about the royal family and whether we need them at all in today's day and age. And of course, climate change, some of the biggest issues facing humanity. How should we be approaching them? If you are interested in any of these three things, then you should get involved and watch this podcast. But also, if you just like to see people with different perspectives going back and forth, um, trying to learn from each other, then equally, this is an episode worth your time. Uh, take a listen, uh, strap in, make a cup of tea or coffee, whatever it is. Enjoy it. I believe we're good to go. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Lord Michael. I'm going to start with uh, a very simple and straightforward question. Are all politicians corrupt? Uh, that's as good a question as are journalists accurate consistently? And I think you and I know the answer that journalists can be incredibly deceitful and deliberative in the way in which they manipulate information and affairs. Politicians, on the other hand, seek, if you're an elected MP, to serve the interests of their constituents primarily and to fulfill their wider ambitions across parliament and the political scene. That does mean they come as whole people. So they seek to work together their lives to support the constituents who brought them to office instinctively. My answer to you, Mike, would be I know so many politicians, MPs and peers, people in the civil service, those in charge of institutions, I found very few who are consistently desiring to be either corrupt or to distort the system or to be, or in any way besmirch or destroy the rules. That's not the reality. Yeah. Most seek to serve and they're true to their intentions. That's that's fair. I mean, I expected a kind of dignified answer, and that is true. I think everything you've said there probably is the case from the outside looking in. I mean, sounds like a flipping question. Or the question, inside but... looking out in my case. <laughs> of course. I mean, it sounds like a flipping question, but of course I, I, I ask it not in a vacuum. Listeners will know about what's happening in the news right now with Owen Patterson. Um, there is some sympathy I feel for him, for him on the personal level because uh, some people may not know, but his, life, his wife took, uh, took her life last year during an inv investigation into him. Um, and so that, you know, condolences, of course, and, and there's, there's personal sympathy there. But of course, the, di the dictionary definition of, of corruption is dishonest or fra fraudulent conduct by those in power, typically involving bribery. In the case of Owen Patterson, we learned that he was taking uh, payments from uh, external companies, £100,000 uh, a pot and was actually found to be lobbying uh, on their behalf, speaking to other members of parliament and ministers about their interests, so to speak. So you spoke a minute ago about interest there and, and how most uh, MPs you know, uh, members of the House of Lords, your colleagues, act uh, in the interest of, of ordinary people. I mean, in the case of Owen Patterson, what do you make of that? Is, is that corruption or, or would you say, no, it's something else is going on there? Well, look, let me say let me say this and only this. The jury remains slightly out because part of the shambles of the way in which the House of Commons dealt with this matter was the wider question of what is the right of the member accused 
and even charged to appeal. Now, you know, Mike, I spend a lot of time in and around people who are incarcerated in our prison system. And I come across multiple, multiple, I've got piles of them on my desk, examples of mistreatment and misjudgment and misrepresentation. And we do have a legal appeals system for those incarcerated. And of course, one of the tragedies of it is it's sluggish, it's slow, it's overburdened, it's difficult to respond. But in Owen Patterson's case, and in the case of an MP accused, even charged of inappropriate behavior, even charged with corruption, the right of appeal issue did not apply. He wasn't able to give clear, explained, transparent, public answers to the accusations. Therein lies what took place in the shambles of the Commons behaviour. And any one of us would have to say natural justice fairly applied would require an honest appeals procedure that gave him the chance to represent himself and his perception of the truth. They may still come down with an adjudication, but he didn't have that opportunity. And therein lies the problem. Well, again, I take your point. I think some people listening may see the problem slightly differently. They may say the problem, actually, is that we've got a system where politicians are able to be paid more than they earn from their actual job as politicians. You know, and so that brings up questions of who are they actually representing? So so some people may look at this and go, you know, you've spoken there about a kind of legal rigmarole and and the fact that he didn't, you know, he couldn't represent himself. And and I, you know, that's totally fair. But um, what kind of world do we live in or what kind of polit- political system do we have? Can it be fair? And can we really say MPs are acting in the interest of the people when they can receive £100,000? And for folks who are wondering what the kind of average earnings of an MP is, I, I guess the stock earning is between, say, 80000 and eighty five, isn't it? That, that, that's, what, that's what's been popularly reported. But, um, I mean, I mean... Honestly, do you think an MP could say and claim to be representing his or her local constituency, receiving eighty thousand pounds for that job, whilst having two essentially other jobs where they receive a hundred thousand pound a pot? And just so we move it away from the conservative here, I mean, okay, one more conservative person, Sajid Javid, also works for J.P. Morgan, but away from that, away from that, did work for J.P. Morgan. Did I should say did? Um, He's now received a promotion. I'm sure he's he's handsomely. Uh, uh, paid, but you, no, but equally, we learned that the leader of the opposition, too, when he uh, wasn't a leader of the opposition, also uh, took on uh, different legal uh, roles, as it were, uh, did some legal work, and was also paid for that. Does is that system fit for purpose, Lord Michael? Does, does it really make sense to have this kind of system where you've got all these different deals going on? How can you trust politicians? Well, it's very interesting that here is a independent crossbench member of the House of Lords who is not paid being asked to defend the attitudes, objectives, behaviours and actions of elected MPs. But let me say this, which is important. You, Mike, have been, and I know you remain, but you have been a professional student of politics. And you will know that the way in which the House of Lords, or House of Commons rather, was framed in terms of its business beginning at 2.30 in the afternoon, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays uh, largely uh, beginning around about 11 o'clock and going through the afternoon. And then on Thursdays, also having a shorter day and not generally sitting on Fridays. That pattern was established partly to to take account of the fact, one, that MPs would come from many constituencies across the country, distance, but also that they would work in the city. Large numbers of MPs used to be lawyers, 
financiers, investors, people who did another job and then came to Parliament. And what they did is bring their expertise with them, which Parliament required. Now, of course, as time has gone by, the level of demand on MPs has gone up and up and up. And so their pay has also gone up and up and up. But what's fascinating, and I used to be a broadcast journalist, and now, of course, I'm, a, I'm an unelected member of the unpaid House of Lords, is that as, as time has gone by, journalists pay who sit there and criticize elected MPs with such vicious and vile tones earn on average three to four times what MPs are. We have to be honest and say that the salaries of MPs do not compare even to local authority officers who earn sometimes two to three times what an MP earns, journalists earning three to four times what an MP earns. But let's also make another perspective point, Matt, which is very, very, very important. You, you make the point rightly about MPs having the job of the, uh, of the representation of their constituents' interest. That is right. However, as you will know, on the government side, there are in excess of 100 of those MPs in government jobs, including the Prime Minister, who is an MP and a Minister of the Crown. The Health Secretary is an MP and a Minister of the Crown. The Transport Secretary is an MP and a Minister of the Crown. And then you go through all the junior ministers, who are also an MP and ministers. So there are already 100 MPs doing two jobs in the service of the public. One is to be an MP, the other is to be uh, in the service of the Crown as a minister. There are members of the opposition. Keir Starmer doesn't receive an MP's salary. His salary is in the mid 100,000s because as a leader of the opposition, official opposition, he's in addition paid because that's a job. So we have to be very reasonable about this. So many people are doing two jobs officially already. Some are doing three jobs. And one of the reasons why they may do three jobs as was wisely pointed out, if you have doctors, nurses, pharmacists, clinicians, experts in health services in the course of the last two years sitting in the Palace of Westminster in the House of Commons, where do you most want them? You want them on the front line, seeing to patients and supporting people during the pandemic. So to criticize people for having professional skills whilst being an MP is to ignore the fact of ministerial reality but secondly, it is to denude the critical skills for the reasons why they came to Parliament. But it's also to disregard another fact, Mike, which is the way Parliament has been structured is we've all wanted our democracy on the cheap. People want to finger wag at an MP who's earning £85,000 a year. But if the same person of profession was to seek to go for a job in London, they'd be very put out if they weren't being paid in excess of £100,000 a year, which all the journalists who criticise them are being paid, and all the civil servants who are doing the jobs behind the scenes are being paid, and rightly so. So we, we've got to end democracy on the cheap. We've got to be honest about the property and rights of the minds and professional skills of MPs, and we've got to respect our democracy by paying MPs decently, but also not literally finger-wagging from the outside, the hard job that they have to do, we yeah. need to support them. Here's the thing, though. I think you are definitely preaching to the choir on MPs earning more. I agree. I think we're we're in totally a total agreement there. I think it's it's pretty crazy, actually. As I think that's the only word that comes to mind to think about someone who's been doing something for twenty or thirty years, earning the same as someone who just came out of university, maybe worked for four years, 
and is a kind of upstart in their local community. That's a problem. When you're 55 and, and you've got grandchildren, you're living in the heart of London, 80,000 pounds doesn't go that far. So I get that. However, notice the, the, the questions about corruption and dishonesty here. And, and, I, and I think, you know, what you've spoken about, whilst true, you know, you, you've spoken there about the importance of doing multiple jobs. I don't think that's what's, you know, on trial here. It's about the interests you represent when you also work for private entities like the JP Morgans and the Randox and all these kind of uh, other businesses that essentially have their own private desires and, and, and private uh, uh, wills. Essentially, when you're someone who, who, I mean, let's be honest, Sajid Javid, when he worked for JP Morgan, I mean, wasn't working full-time hours. He did a couple of hours a month um, and, and he was handsomely compensated for it. My, the question is, is there something compromised in an MP's role when they've got these essentially backhand deals with private entities? Yes, they may declare them uh, uh, before an ethics committee, but the public don't really know about them. Uh, the, for a lot of members of the public, this was the first time hearing that Owen Patterson had a different job. And then it came out that every MP seems to be working for private businesses on the side. And there you go. Isn't this why we're seeing such a shocking uh, or, 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 or quite frankly, a really uh, a sad level of trust, if you like, in the public? The public don't trust journalists. That's one thing. The public don't trust the royals, which will come unto you. Spoke about the crown. Well, actually, that's but incorrect. The public, the public trusts the royals more than anyone else, and you know that fact. But the public don't trust politicians, and 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 does that bother you that the 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 house you're part of isn't that trusted <laughs> by the public? Well, the house I'm part of is very trusted by the public because we do an extremely decent job at very little reward. Uh, but the challenge is really to the is to the the behaviour of the elected house to the members, individual members of the elected house. You made a very good point, right? Which is for somebody who has been around in the in the Palace of Westminster in the House of Commons for forty five years is earning the same as somebody who's twenty two and gets elected into a seat immediately at the point of an emergency and somebody you know an event happens and there's a there's a by election in comes a new guy and he's twenty four a new lady and she's twenty four and they earn the same. I mean this is this is a very unfair system. There isn't a proper promotions and recognition system that takes account of length of service or depth of expertise as you would do in private industry or frankly as you would do even in the civil service you know one of the difficulties of politics and i've, I've been a, around politics for a very long time and within politics for an equally long time one of the great difficulties is trying to help the, the public understand how complex how difficult how intractable, how almost in so many ways, how not understandable it all is. When, you know, when matters of national security have to be taken by a committee in the House of Commons in complete privacy, away from public awareness, away from notation and public detail, away from minutes and away from public evidence, it's because there are issues of such significance and security they cannot be widely discussed or made available on camera that's just part of the intense duty that the elected households and we hold different responsibilities in the house of lords but it, so many things are done in the public interest that the public don't necessarily get the detail of don't get to see and don't get to understand if we're completely candid about it the other side is mike you know as well as I do that if you were to stare at the front pages of these poking newspapers, 
who are there sitting there criticizing MPs relentlessly and going on about their £85,000 salaries, knowing full well that the editor is sitting on millions and all the sub-editors are sitting on hundreds of thousands and all the key journalists are sitting on hundreds of thousands. So they're poking away at MPs who are seeking to do hard service. We know very well that there's a cynical sneering ability built into the fact that public do not have political awareness, education or information. You you are schooled in politics, and I know you're a member of the wrong side, but you're schooled in politics. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, let it be. <laughs> We'd all agree on the fact that if you were to ask the vast majority of our great population to explain the complexities of the EU trade arrangements through Brexit and before it, and what that means for the border issues in Northern Ireland, and how on earth you deal with the fisheries problems confronted by France and the Netherlands, you would get a yawning gap and say, please, can I watch Coronation Street? Because no, I, these... I, I, I have to push back on that because I, I, I take your point, but I think some people would say, they, whilst you're right, the political education in the country must go up. We all agree on that. Citizenship it's almost non-existent. I, I agree, but, but, to, but, to, but corruption is still corruption. And people yeah, can but... still point it out when something is awry, when elected representatives are, are, are up for sale. I mean, we saw it. I agree with you on that. Of course, I agree with you on that. And if, and you have to remember, this is something really important, right? You're too young, and I'm not, but you're too young to remember the fine detail of what was called the MP's expenses scandal. Everyone loves to call it the MP's expenses scandal. This was led by the Daily Telegraph out there, finger pointing and wagging about things that we all came to laugh at, such as the boathouse and the duck pond and all the rest of it and all the rest of it. Now, when all that was said and done, and it went on for months, and the country was throwing itself into spaghetti you know, Well, you do, but you must have been, I don't know, nappies or something. But when people were throwing themselves in spaghetti hoops of disorder, that there were these MPs taking little bits of money and expenses. He, he, here's what happened at the end of it all. So out of 659 MPs at the time, how many cases did the Daily Telegraph and the, and the Daily Mail, which followed a little bit in suit, Daily, how many cases did they manage to drag up? Well, you know what it was? It was less than 200. That's less than a third of the total members. After all that their expose brought about, independent investigation of those, say, let's call it 200 claims, just less than 200, those 200 claims, how many actually were found had required repayment? How many? It was less than 20. And how many actually had committed a crime? It was four. So when you stand back from it, a great hullabaloo was made out of something actually that was very little. But And, and here's the additional thing. The public only knew about about the duck pond and all the rest of it, because the expenses required receipts. If you were a member of the European Parliament at the time, if you're a member of any parliament in Europe, including the French and the Germans, the Dutch, you do not provide receipts for expenses. You have a you have an open claim. That that is true, and I agree that system that system's bad. But I don't think that kind of. Uh, uh, fr uh, frees us from responsibility too. No, I but, but you see, let us let us not over criticize the accountability and transparency of a system that generally works extremely well with fine duty and recognizing that when the hype and the balloon goes up, as it did over the MPs' expenses scandal, 
it came down to a handful. Yeah. And that doesn't represent a scandal. A scandal. Yeah. That, and, that, in this and in this particular case, the only corruption claim that can be made is poking at one particular MP, but he has not had the full right of reply in detail to the to the chamber which has accused him or charged him. And therefore, that's why I say jury still out. My, my experience of and knowledge of vast numbers of elected members, Labour, Conservative, Liberal, Scottish, you name them, even Green, although there's only one of them. My experience of the vast majority of them is they are there out of good intention, solid duty, get on with the job, do everything they can. Maybe they write a book and get paid for it. Maybe they do a little bit of external consulting on the outside and they receive a fee. Maybe they speak somewhere and they receive a fee. But the, abs the absolute purity of their role is their great intention to serve those who put them in office, uh, put them into their, into their position in the House of Commons, and to serve them genuinely, consistently, constantly. And we've seen the death of two MPs and the attacks on a number of other MPs in the duty, the course of their duties. Most of us don't face that. So let's be kind to these people, not just yeah. constantly poke them. I think your point is well made. I think it will be for listeners uh, to let us know what they think. I mean, folks, you can drop a comment or you can, of course, uh, tweet with the hashtag Common Sense Podcast. And let us know, I mean, do you agree with Lord Michael here? I mean, uh, I, 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 I agree. And I think oftentimes when, when we talk about things like this, and I've spoken to all sorts of people about, you know, the, the issue, uh, some often default to the legality of it all and go, well, he didn't break the law. But of course, we must do better than simply not breaking the law. The question is, morally speaking, um, it, is this the right thing to do? You know, is he off the hook, so to speak? And even with the expensive scandal you bring up, you know, yes, for a lot of them, you know, they weren't tried and, and we didn't see uh, folks forced to, to pay back. But it's about principle. You know, we're in a time where where a large proportion uh, of, of a, a large portion rather of the country are, are going to face rising energy costs, of course. A lot of them have had the universal credit uplift. We all know about that being removed. And so folks are feeling the tension, are feeling the, the squeeze, inflation's up. And then whilst that's all happening, you're hearing about essentially someone who's elected, that you've elected to represent you, collecting and having <laughs> having a wonderful payday. That feels wrong. And, and of course, it, it, you know, it, it changes people's perspectives on politicians. Okay, just a quick interruption to tell you to subscribe if you're watching on YouTube, but also if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, then follow, uh, leave a, a, a rating. We want to see this podcast grow and your help could help us do that. One more thing that's changed actually is the public's perception of the royal family. And I find this quite interesting because young people and old people have very different... <laughs> feelings about the royal family which probably isn't breaking news to folks listening now in august um this was the the most recent survey i could find about young people uh, a, a yougov survey uh, of of young people these are people between the ages of 18 and 24 uh these are folks that you know some would be millennials maybe and some are gen z and even generation alpha uh folks who who, who will inherit the future um, forty-one percent of them said that we should have an elected head of state. Um, I didn't believe in in the system as we have it right now, and thirty-one percent uh, said that they still wanted a king or a queen. Now, 
Of course, this debate has been raging on the, the Republican movement is well known for uh, for for grabbing every opportunity to have a conversation about whether we need a royal family or not. But Lord Michael, what I thought would be interesting to find out from you isn't so much do we in the royal family, do we not need it? But but far more, you know, what does the Queen do? <laughs> you know something, I, I was I was inclined to think that you might ask me that question. So I did a little careful preparation of today's realities. And uh, I found that as I prepared for today's realities, uh, I looked at what's called <coughs> the, um, the Royal Account. And the Royal Account is published every single day uh, in the Court and Circular. You can find it available. Um, in fact, I'm just going to go to today's, uh, and you can find it available in the Times. And what you will read is as follows. This was yesterday's account. The Queen held a council via video link at 4.30 p.m. They were present. They were present. The Right Honourable Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Lord President, the Right Honourable Theresa Coffey, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, the Right Honourable Alistair Jack, MP Secretary of State for Scotland, the Right Honourable Nadine Zahawi, Secretary of State for Education, the Right Honourable Michelle Dowden, MP, the Lord Frost, the Right Honourable Dame Sherburn Keegan, the Right Honourable Sir Paul Maguire, the Right Honourable Christopher Malthouse MP, and the Right Honourable Nicholas Thomas Simmons MP, were sworn in as members of Her Majesty's Most Honourable Privy Council. Mrs Kerry King was in, was in attendance as Deputy Clerk of the Council. The Prince of Wales, on behalf of the Queen, held investiture at Windsor Castle this, this evening by command of the Queen, Mr Alastair Harrison, uh, who's the Marshal <laughs> of the Diplomatic Court. Now, I can go on. Yeah. And on and on about the Queen's activities. There they are. That was yesterday. She had a meeting. No, Mike. This is a string of critical meetings that discuss matters called in-council decisions. These are decisions, decisions of state that relate to custody questions, security questions and issues, people's life chances, people from the Commonwealth countries who make appeals to the Crown about incarcerations and life sentences for countries which still have capital punishment. And these are questions, and I won't go into any fine detail because the fine detail is never available, but the facts are on the record. Every prime minister has known it. Every prime minister has to meet with and does meet with the queen on a weekly basis. Every chancellor meets with the queen the night before there is a budget. The queen has constant meetings with the ministers of her government at every single level. She receives documents and papers of intelligence and information of legislation and scrutiny of finance and public duty every single day. And she fulfills over 400 public engagements which is more than even you managed to get to the pub. So don't sit there saying smarty things about the Queen. That's just the Queen, let alone who at 95 is fulfilling a full-time role, doing things of great importance to our state, let alone to individuals. And then you add the other senior members of the royal family who have a great pleasure to work with over the decades. They are incredible men and women. We should be very grateful for their service. And I did note from your incredibly effective survey, you said 41%. 41%. My word, I'm so glad I did maths. That means 59% don't. Well, so well, 41% want an electorate, 59% don't. I think that's called a damn clear majority. And if we'd <laughs> applied that, if we'd applied that to Brexit, <laughs> 41 to 59, oh my gosh, we'd have stayed in <laughs> because the right thing would have been done. Let's not get caught up on the little 41 who don't understand 
what the monarchy is all about. And the monarchy is all about let's let's keep ourselves in a sound place for people of decency and dignity. Long rule over us. <laughs> <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite a tough thing. I mean, to, to, to clear up the stat, you know, 31% want a king or a queen, 41% don't. And so the folks in the middle are unsure. Michael, hey, good. The, the, list you re- the list you read out is, is absolutely fantastic. I mean, I didn't know that. And I, I think folks listening should probably think about taking a look at the, the royal account. Apart from just well, one it's called wonders, the Court and Social, uh, and it's uh, available in the Times and the Telegraph every single day. If, if, I, if I could just finish, apart from just wonders, why couldn't an elected head of state do all those things? Well, you know, there are elected heads of state who do those things, like the President of Ireland, if you can look down enough to see him. But there are elected heads of state who do those things, and they are important. And it's very important for countries which have elected heads of state that they fulfill all of those significant duties. And we're very grateful for them. But then you have to ask about the costs. And when you look at the costs of elected heads of state, which have to come directly from the taxpayer's purse, and then you look at the costs. Uh, I, you don't know what I'm going to say now. I'm, looking, at the, I'm so glad you brought up costs. <laughs> yes, I'm so glad I did bring up costs. And how is the monarchy funded? Would well, you care to explain, Mike? Or well, do you want me to explain? Well, we can talk about the civil list, of course. Yes. Is that what you want to discuss? And and, uh, and, and where uh, does it come from? The 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 um the public. It's, it, it's no, from it doesn't. Taxes. It comes from the no, government. No, it doesn't. But as, as, no, as Margaret Thatcher said, there is there is no government money. I mean, it's 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 the public that the money that generates the money. It doesn't uh, come from the public. Uh, who does it come from then? It comes from the rents and the fees paid to the crown estate. The crown estate exists of lands, including vast amounts of shops farms and properties in London and across the United Kingdom in very lucrative areas where those who trade off those lands, farming, energy and retail, pay fees or rents to the Crown Estate. The bulk of the Crown Estate's resources go into the Treasury coffers. The Treasury, the taxpayer, benefits to the tune effectively of 80% of the value of the Crown Estate. Less than 20% of the value of the Crown Estate is then transferred for the funding of the monarchy. Got you. So the taxpayer pays nothing. So <laughs> that's that's quite a way to look at it. Based on well, it's research, the fact. You you can you can tell me you can tell me if this is wrong based on my research here, but um, my research shows that the civil list as as we current as it currently stands stands at, at about seven point nine million. Is that true, or that's just that's just kind of hocus pocus? No, that's that's true. Right. Uh, it also says here that. Essentially, what this covers is things like staffing cost, catering, hospitality, executive admin, ceremonial functions, so on and so forth. But then policy, as it were, uh, in 1972, actually prevented go- the government from cutting uh, the civil list and, and essentially uh, ensure that irrespective of what kind of public spending was being reduced or increased, that the civil list would always be protected. Is, is, is that correct? Say that last bit again. So essentially, the civil list as it currently stands cannot yeah. be cut by the government uh, unless they were to basically undo that bill, uh, the, the kind of uh, the 1972 Civil List Act. Correct. Right. So, as it pertains to ownership, then, which is what you spoke about, it's about rents. You, your argument, if I'm correct, is that the because it seems as though the argument being made is almost as though the royal family is this 
entity that exists separately or separate rather to the public own all this land by just their kind of God-given right. And so it's this kind of insulated system that just keeps itself going. And so the public, it costs them nothing. So that 7.9 million belongs to them. Is, is that Am I right in thinking that's what, that's what you're saying? No, no, you've got it. No, I think you've got it. You've got it round. Um, dare I say something? Face, um, because his, this, the monarchy, historic institution of the United Kingdom, obviously separated kings out of Scotland and out of England, but also there used to be fiefdoms in Wales, England, and Scotland. And uh, so now we have, and of course, these have been Ireland as well, but when it was a British, a British colony. But however, now we have a single crown estate uh, who receives dues and rents from land, land which is the property of the crown, not the queen, not the Prince of Wales, not Prince William, the crown. In other words, this is national land. This is farming land. This is estate area land. This is, this is commercial land on which there are businesses, retail, manufacturing, agricultural, operational, all of those pay fees. They go into a common pot, which is the Crown Estate Fund. That is transferred to the Treasury. The Treasury allocate less than 20% of that on an annualized basis. The operation of the monarchy, it's somewhere between, between 9 to 15% on average. But that does include all of the state duties. So when heads of state come, ambassadors come, uh, when there are major banquets at the palaces, when the United States president comes, all these costs are met out of the rent fees of lands which are held under the crown duty. Got you. The queen passes and the Prince of Wales is, is taken to the throne. He doesn't own the land. She doesn't own the land. The land is held. The, the land is held by the crown. Now, let's not get into a peculiar and odd debate about what that means, because if I had to tell you, Mike, that you who have many times stepped into the bowels of the BBC, whether you've done it in Manchester or in London, and even taken fees from the BBC for your appearances, you can, uh, I'm sure you know that the BBC is established under Crown Charter. Yes. It doesn't, it doesn't belong to the government. It doesn't belong to an individual company. It is a Crown property. This is the reality of our system. We have Crown property. Crown property means the Queen doesn't control it, nor directly own it, but it is there for the establishment of the state, which but of course she, is the state. She receives compensation from it. And, and no, she, no, she receives an emolument, legally, yeah. an emolument, which comes as in response to her duties as monarch. Got you. Now, some listeners may go, what, why does this matter? Why, why is the technical... Yeah, why, does it, why, why are you asking these questions? <laughs> these are odd questions to be asking on a... <laughs> The reason why it's so important is because it cuts right to the heart, that technicality of who owns it, to the, to, to the heart of, I think, the Republican movement. Because because ah. we, we can talk about, you know, the abuse of prerogative powers by ministers that use the crown, essentially, to do all sorts of different things. We can talk about um, social division and, and things of that nature. But, but for me, the most salient argument really for for um um the republican movement and i'm here to represent the perspective just to give you a, a chance to kind of respond to it not because i'm advocating for anything at all is is really to consider this idea of birthright because the people you're talking about who uh are figureheads uh don't control but are you know merely stewards whatever term we want to use 
They are there, not because they're elected, but they're there by birthright. Now, in a liberal modern democracy, where I know one of your life goals is to bend the powers of, of or bend power, uh, bend the levers of power towards the potential of the poor. I've heard you speak about that, which is something I, you know, that, that, I, that I also resonate with. I would also imagine you're interested in fairness, right? Does it strike you as fair that folks by virtue of where they're born get to lead and whether figuratively or not a country? Well, how interesting, because you're talking about the exceptionally high quality democratic system that governs the United States that produced Donald Trump. I mean, folks will say it's an aberration. There, 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 there were lots oh, of, was it? There, there oh, lots oh, of it was. Okay. Beforehand. And if anything, look what happened after Donald Trump. I mean, if anything, what, what that whole system or period, sorry, demonstrated was how robust those systems tend to be. And that, yes, ah, you might have an aberration, have an yes. aberration here and there, but things always sort themselves out. So what was robust was the institutions of the state. The institutions of the state. You, you know this, Mike. The, the United States, let's just be on it for one moment, may have an elected aberration in Donald Trump at one point when he was president, but an elected president. Yes, he did get an operational majority. Yes, he did, without any question at all. But look what that subsequently produced in the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January the 6th of 2021, which showed us what really happens behind the scenes of this so-called open, transparent, democratic system controlled and manipulated by a demagogue. And standing behind that system, as you know very well, every member of Donald Trump's or Joe Biden's or Barack Obama's cabinet is unelected, every single one. Not one stands public office the vice president is not directly elected she sits on the ticket of the president yes it's the president people go to elect not the vice president but then also the most authoritative center of american democratic political decision making second to the role of the president and the house of representatives is the supreme court which has permanently appointed judges unelected in other words if you want to look at one of the biggest establishments of democratic procedure two-thirds of it is unelected but none of it is by birthright and that's and that's well, the problem here it's about birthright appointments selections we get that but 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 the notion that by virtue of your bloodline, I mean, literally, it's something from out of Game of Thrones. The, the, <laughs> the idea, That's exactly what it is. It is a Game of Thrones. <laughs> it is. The notion that just by your birthright, that that that's what strikes the heart of the debate. It's not so much about you know uh, open democratic system versus closed democratic system, about select uh, selections and appointments. It's about birthright. How can we have an that, such an emblem in a liberal democratic? I mean, does that argument does it does it resonate with you? This this idea that people shouldn't, by virtue of you know, I mean, and here's the thing. I, if I'm to be personal, just for a moment, listeners will love this. I feel sorry for some members of the royal family because upward social mobility isn't afforded to them. This is something. <laughs> that, this is something. Where would they go? This, this is my point. But this is something that's so 
it's it's so innately human to be able to kind of to be born somewhere and to have the opportunity to through your hard work through merit whatever it is to kind of ascend and to to grow they they're frozen in time that, well that, not i would I wouldn't argue they're frozen in time. They, they not only grow into great roles, they expand those roles and take on enormous opportunity and duty. I was privileged just over a week and a half ago to make a major award, part of the Stephen R. Covey Center of Leadership in the United States, to Indri Onyoy, the former president and chief executive of PepsiCo. And one of the things that we were able to discuss quite openly was the Prince of Wales' Earth Prize, the Earthshot Prize. It's the first ever major funded environmental prize that we've ever had in the UK, also in association with David Attenborough and a variety of significant ecologists and environmentalists. A one million pound prize was given to five winners from around the world live on television two, two three weeks ago. And Indrianoi was so proud of being able to be part of an association with the British royal family, with the with Prince William, who has taken the leadership of the Earthshot Prize, which has been able to put at the forefront public interest in solutions to the dilemmas being discussed at COP26. You know, th this is this is an evolution of somebody's life and role and responsibilities. And the Queen, in her speech to COP26, pointed out her immense joy at the way in which her former husband, of course, took on environmental issues in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Prince Charles has taken those on subsequently. Prince William is taking them on continuously. You see this continuous progression of people who are in the royal family that they don't sit there awaiting moments. They grab moments on our, of our interests. And any young man or woman who has received, and the number is in excess of 5,000 young men and women who have received benefit from the Prince's Trust to help them to establish jobs, young, urban, black boys and girls who've got the opportunity to receive grants, to be able to progress their lives, is grateful to the Prince of Wales for that investment and commitment, as are the over 400,000 young people who participated in the Duke of Edinburgh's award, including my own children, who have been greatly advanced by the opportunity of being engaged in something established by royalty, but delivering uh, service and challenge and change of mind and freedom. So we can sit there again. This is a bit like the previous part of our conversation. People can poke out of ignorance or they can try and get behind the facts, know the facts, understand yeah. the facts and then relax. I, I, I think, again, I, I take your point. I, I'm one, I've been recipients of some of the programs you're talking about. So Indeed, I, and many I, I fees have, from the Crown Estate. But, but, you're, <laughs> but you'll notice again, Mike, just like the first question, you know, the issue here isn't about the outputs, because because I can speak at length at the good outputs that, that have come from the royal family, good things that have been established, good things that have been done. You know, it's a shame that some members of the uh, some members can't speak about good things that have come from certain members of the of the or ex uh, senior members of the royal family. But but I can see both. I sides. can't think of any. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. I can see both sides. However, that's not that's not what's been again. That's not what's on trial here. It's about systems, and and what I'm trying to put to you here are the thoughts and I think energy of a lot of young people who are reimagining systems, rather than tilting things to the left and tilting things to the right, are thinking how should we how should we kind of reform and change the world, not least after COVID. And one of the major things they ask about the royal family is this issue of fairness. It, uh, folks often see it as like a, a, a kind of a small. Uh, 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 inconsequential thing, but it's really important to people that the idea that you'd have a liberal democracy where you say you can make it if you try, you can be anything you put your mind to, but but for that, you have to be born into it. 
I mean, that that just doesn't strike me as fair. And again, I put, I put it to you. Does that kind of system seem fair to you? Okay, so this is my last interruption for this podcast. This time, I want to hear what you think. This is a little breather from uh, what is an interesting conversation. Let me know on YouTube in the comments section. Do you agree? Do you disagree? What are your thoughts? But also, if you're listening to the podcast, then you can use the hashtag Common Sense Podcast on Twitter and equally let me know what you think there. All right, back to the episode. Well... When you when you go into the birthright challenge, it doesn't seem fair to almost anybody. But you see, the governance of a country, of a nation and a state is never going to be down to fairness policies. It's got to be as to what is appropriate for the leadership of government. Presidential systems in most countries are not fair. They represent people either people with substantial resources or people who've been part of the respected system of government for a long period of time and then are given presidential opportunity or they are possibly even elected into presidential opportunity, but they've been part of the public estate and they haven't got there by accident or just turned up a moment ago. They've been in the business of politics and public service for a long period of time. We, you know, we have to be very honest here. If we're going to if we're going to try and say that countries and states, uh, historical countries and states and such as the United Kingdom, which has a very, very long history, should abandon all of its traditions and histories just because it doesn't sit well with a few who are endlessly on the ticket called fair, whereas I would argue that there are two other priorities when it comes to public responsibility. Fair is understandable, but just is more important than fair, meaning that we need to do things which are appropriate to the least privileged and those who are the most marginalized. And the other one is, is, is accountability and competency. And it's whether or not we can deliver appropriately for the services that the public need, proper accountability and proper responsibility. So let me give you an example of that. We, we at this, the very moment in which we are recording this conversation, this is the day of 103 years ago to the ending of the First World War. And this weekend, there will be Remembrance Weekend. We remember the events of the Second World War and subsequent wars. We, we, don't, we don't have uh, those who are generals and admirals and leaders of our primary services just popping up out of the street. They're people who have to go through a process of often extremely private extremely and often very secretive development of honing of their skills and capabilities so that they can lead and lead others in times of war and conflict in order that we can retain our freedoms. We're all deeply grateful for the retaining of our freedoms, but none of us got to be in the decision base when it came to the nature of the wars of 103 years ago, or frankly, 80 years ago. So we cannot rule a country or govern a country based on fairness. It doesn't work or on equal equalities, that doesn't work either. Appropriate skilling and accountability is necessary and, and, and justice is also necessary to provide for those most marginalized. 
I think your point is well made. And again, like the first conversation uh, or the first topic, it's, it, it will be for listeners to, to decide exactly what they think. Um, I, I totally get where you're coming from, uh, by the way. And, and folks, for folks who are wondering how a transition could work to a Republican, um, uh, or a Republic rather, uh, you can go on, you can search at the Republican website. <laughs> there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole prescription there about how we might be able to move. Because I, because I, I just think it's possible to change a system uh, you know, I, 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 I think it's possible and I think we can do it. And, and I know the UK doesn't do revolutions. Um, it, it's, it, you know, the UK is, is the country folks of people revolt away from. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's hard to do revolutions when that is your historical position. But um, that, that, well, that's that sounds like that does sound like an episode of Game of Thrones, because which is a fantasy. And so in the same way as it's a fantasy to think that we're going to become a republic, it's a fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> to, to read the script of Game of Thrones. Did you did you do you remember the the message I sent you with the um with the five different things that would change the world that someone had tweeted, um, yeah. and like uh, and they had just five different things and they were all kind of really you know wishful. But but I, I do think that 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 taps into something I want to ask you, which is you know following COVID, many young people around the world are reimagining the world yes. and are really motivated to change things. We yes. are having this conversation with the backdrop of COP26 about to end um, and, and or has ended, uh, but, but, but will end uh, imminently. And of course, young people are, or the, the reports are that you know, Greta Thunberg and, and lots of other young climate activists weren't actually given uh, access to the conference in the way they, they, they would have liked. Uh, what are your thoughts about the future? how we uh, tackle some of the biggest issues uh, in the world, uh, be it climate change, be it, be it uh, 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 poverty, uh, be it, be it uh, literacy or even media literacy, whatever it is. And, and what's the place of young people in that? Do you think young people are invited enough to the decision-making table? Um, and were you speaking to a young person, what exactly would you say to them? Hmm. Well, you've wrapped so many things together in that. And, and at the point at which we're recording this, COP26 is, is not completed. It won't be completed for another two days. And let's hope that some of the agreements within COP26, including the unique, you very unique agreement between the United States and China announced just 24 hours ago before this recording, but also many of the other steps taken by, ironically, by many Latin American countries about forestry provision and protection, which we didn't expect. There are some good results that are coming out of the discussion so far. I've always got to remain optimistic that there will be a better tomorrow than there is today, because everybody is now very grown up and very aware and very at pains to understand how serious the climate emergency actually is. Now, I can say that, recognizing that when I started my time in a commercial company, some uh, which was actually going back now sort of essentially 15 years ago, and I began to talk in a commercial company about its duty and responsibility as a citizen to the environment, I got laughed out of court. But when it then came a few years on where I then proposed that we had a management system for understanding our carbon impacts, I had to fight it two times through the board of that organization, which has tentacles in 165 countries. Then subsequently, once they gained awareness that this was going to be a real business issue, it put us in the forefront. Every subsequent other business began to follow suit. Now you can't find any business that doesn't see, feel that it must have an environmental awareness duty, that it must measure its carbon, it must reduce its carbon, it must take steps for, for better use of electricity, it must go to renewable energy sourcing. And in the world of transport, I watched an interview today with the chief executive of United Airlines, one of the largest of international airlines, an American airline, talking about the way in which 
they've been using renewable fuels rather than carbon fuels for flying their aircraft. I know that Virgin has been doing exactly the same. British Airways has been experimenting exactly the same. Is it possible to have vehicles driving on our roads, which are hydrogen powered? Yes, we have them. That we have that we have uh, solar powered vehicles, which are now available. Do we have hybrid vehicles? Yes, we do. Yeah. Do we have fully battery powered vehicles? Will we have aircraft flying on renewable fuels? Yes, we will. These are all commercial solutions to an environmental tragedy which is unfolding in front of us, but is also a business opportunity. So the private sector is applying its skills in response to an emergency so that we can begin to meet the duties of reducing our carbon impacts and protecting the planet by having lower carbon put in it. Yes, are young people essential to that? 1,000%. I will never forget the fact, Mike, when I first saw a group of young people way before Greta Thunberg came along, there were a group of young people, 2010, mm. marching through the streets of Nairobi in Kenya, the first country ever to ban plastic bags. In 2010, there they were, young people, all of them somewhere between 14 to 18, there they were campaigning for and championing the cause of environmental responsibility. Why were they doing that? Why were they arguing about climate at that point in 2010? Why were young people doing it? Because they become aware and educated in their schools about what was necessary to protect the wetlands of those people who live on the wetlands and the, those who are farmers and therefore their natural habitats. And without that, with the drying up that was beginning to happen, which has now become catastrophic, are young people essential? Yes, they are. Get out there, continue to campaign, but don't do something which has become very, very, very dangerous. For young people simply to, again, poke the finger and accuse those in political or business office of being irrelevant to the solution and just call it blah, 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 and to miss the point that all those young people together can't produce the assets, resources, values, innovations, technologies, or engineering that we need. We have to have adults to do that, and therefore we need a combination of adult skills and innovation, commercial involvement, yeah. financial investment, and young people's energy. This is a collective duty we all hold. Let's not divide ourselves on it. Young people get involved as champions and campaigners, but don't go around saying stupid things such as the world beyond us. In other words, the politicians and business leaders have no relevance to this. They're not going to make change happen. It's us as young people make change happen. No, you don't. You don't have the trillions that are necessary for the yeah. renewable energy sourcing, and you don't have the innovation necessary to change the transport systems. And by the way, how did you get there? And you relied on traditional systems to get you there. If you used environmental ones, good for you. But even if you did, you didn't produce the innovation. So let's have a responsible, intelligent young people's engagement in this. And let me say it again, way before people like Greta Thunberg were out there irritating, as she rightly does, there were people, young kids in Kenya, and I watched them in 2010, 12 years ago, doing exactly what is right, which is standing on the streets, having placards, making a point, forcing the country into the decision it took first before we in the UK took it, the banning of plastic bags. So they have a role, vital but don't denigrate the roles of others. Mike, that's, that's I, I mean, heard loud and clear. Uh, you know, I just wondered, one last uh, thought I would love you to leave with us. You know, it's something that uh, is often said that young people have lots of energy, but no patience, so to speak. And um, I just wondered if, if there was a young person out there dreaming of a world without the royal family or dreaming of a world without uh, 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 pollution. I'm glad you said dreaming. <laughs> dreaming of a world about pollution, Lord Michael. I mean, 
what would you say to, to, to kind of motivate and, and, and encourage that young person to keep on keeping on such that one day you might see an, an elected head of state or you might see, uh, 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 you know, uh, companies, private companies taking proper care about the ex externalities that innovations cost? Well, I would honestly say to them, and you know this because I've said it to you many times, don't be cynical about the long journey. Being cynical means that you end up giving up, that you protest, or you get irritated and frustrated, and then you throw your hands in the air and you walk away and just do your own thing. And we've seen generation after generation after generation do exactly that. You pointed out that I have been consistent for 50 years now in speaking for the poor and seeking to bend the power of the prosperous to the potential of the poor. And you know exactly how I do that. And I will not give up on that mission. I will consistently keep with it. Martin Luther King said to us that the long arc of history, the long arc of history, ultimately bends towards justice. Last year, uh, one of Martin Luther King's great allies, the congressman, John Lewis, died. And he said to the people of the United States at the time, persist in continuing to build alliances so that you can put justice at the forefront of your thinking and decisions and actions which will empower and enhance the better of those least able to take decisions for themselves. We have to keep at it. Don't become cynical. Don't become cynical and don't become accusatory. And more than anything else, don't become ignorant. And ignorance is the thing that is killing off so much of the potential strengths of a generation. The more the gen a generation is engaged in the facts that knows the truth and then persists in putting that into alignment with outcomes, the more we could see collective change. But here's the other thing I would say to a young person uh, sitting in front of, besides, especially, especially besides being, don't be cynical, is be very generous. Because you can rightly see many others who talk but don't deliver, many who are impassioned, but they're not engaged. So if you're going to be engaged and be involved, it's going to cost you. That's going to mean making choices, about what money and resources you have, make sure you make the right choices, become generous consistently from the beginning, get involved. The more you give yourself away in this long fight of the long arc of justice, equality, and opportunity, yes, have dreams and even have visions, but be persistent in doing what is effective, meaningful, and appropriate. That's an everyday duty. Superb. Thanks so much for that. That is amazing. Um, and folks listening, I hope you take that in. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Lord uh, Michael Hastings. Right, team, I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode, uh, watching it. Uh, if you watched it, I really enjoyed taking part and filming it. And of course, I now want to know what you think. So do comment, do share, do let me know. And moving forward, you can now actually suggest guests for us to have on. So if there's someone who you think, hmm, be interested if I might to talk to this guy, or it would be interesting to hear what this person thinks, then just DM us. Let us know on social media who you think should be on the podcast next. And you can also email us perhaps a list of people uh, using the email TCS Network. Sorry, that's not the email. Hello at tcsnetwork.co.uk. Let me know what you think, because we really want to grow this podcast with your input. Thank you so much as ever for listening. Have a wonderful week. Mm -hmm.